Today we're at chapter John chapter 8, verse 12 to 20, which can be found in your blue Bibles on page 1662. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are, appearing as your own witness, your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And good morning once again. Here at Trinity Church Unley, we are a church that is all about making and growing disciples of Jesus. That's what we want to do. That's what I think we're called to. And I hope that's what you want to be part of as well. And so this February and this March, we're, as a church, we're kicking off this year looking at the ways in which Jesus describes himself. And we're doing that because I think hearing Jesus in his own words is a great way for us to get to know him better. So I might say about myself, good morning everyone, I am Carl, I am a husband, I am a father, I'm seeking to live an honourable life. I am a child of God. I am 172 centimetres tall. And I wish I was 182 centimetres tall. (laughs) See, these are some of the ways in which I describe myself. Some of the ways I communicate my identity. In John's Gospel, there are six or seven ways in which Jesus describes himself using these I am sayings. Last week we saw him say this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Last week we saw Jesus describe himself as the thing or the person in whom you can find true satisfaction. That satisfaction comes because In Jesus, we know to whom we belong. And when we are with Jesus, we know where we're going. That is that we know we will be raised up with Jesus on the last day. But that was last week. This week, Jesus reveals a different aspect of his identity. And we're looking at John chapter 8 this morning. And we're really just focusing in this morning on verse 12. You'll find it on page 
1,662 of your Bibles, and I want to encourage you to turn there this morning, because in a minute I'm going to show you something that I think is quite interesting about the start of John chapter 8, and you'll need your Bibles open to see that. But before I get to that interesting point, let me just remind you of our key verse today that Chris just read. Let me read it again to you. John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus describes himself here as the light of the world. I wonder what you think this morning that means. It's a big claim at the outset, isn't it? Light represents good as opposed to evil. Light gives us the ability to see things as they are. Light helps guide and direct us. I wonder what you think Jesus means here when he says, I am the light of the world. And while you're just letting that percolate in your head, let me show you something that I think is interesting about this part of the Bible, something that I hope instills confidence in you as you read the Bible text in your own time. If you've got your Bibles open there, I want you just to look across the page at the first 11 verses of John chapter 8, and I want you to notice that they're probably written in italics. Certainly they are in our black church Bibles, and they've got a big black line at the top and the bottom. I wonder why the style's changed. What's going on there? Let me explain. Simply put, verses 1 to 11 probably aren't original to John's Gospel. They probably weren't written by John. Now, here's the reality. We don't have the very original copy of John's Gospel letter. It's not kept in some old museum somewhere in Europe. It just probably simply no longer exists. Instead, we rely on copies of that original gospel. And the truth is, there are thousands of copies of the original gospel. Some of them are very, very old. Some are written just a few hundred years after when John wrote them the first time. Now, here's the thing. In those old manuscripts, as they're called, John 1 to 11 is missing in fact, before the year 400 AD, you don't find John, chapters, John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. And then even after that, it only appears a few times. And so it seems that our Bible translators and our Bible editors, they're right to draw our attention to this passage as probably not likely to be part of the original gospel that John wrote. Now, that doesn't mean that the events in verses 1 to 11 are fictitious, not necessarily, but it does mean that they are not original to John. And I tell you all this, really, because I hope that instills confidence in you. I hope you can see that the Bible has been very carefully preserved throughout time. And we can have a high level of confidence that what we're reading today is as John originally intended it to be written. And where there's uncertainty, the editors draw our attention to that. So having sought all that... What is it that John wants us to know about Jesus from this I am statement? Well, let's go back to our key verse again. He wants us to know that Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world. Jesus says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I wonder what you think it means. Because this verse, it sort of hangs there in midair, doesn't it? There isn't much further explanation about what Jesus means in the next few verses that follow on. 
As Chris read them, I wonder if you notice verses 13 to 20, they're really about the Pharisees challenging Jesus about his authenticity. There's little in these verses that follow to help us understand this idea of being light. So what does it mean to be the light of the world? Here's how I want to answer that question today. I want you to see that Jesus is the one who reveals God the Father. Jesus is the one who reveals God the Father. I want you to see that Jesus is the light that leads to salvation, the light that leads to salvation. And I want you to see that Jesus is the light that provides guidance in an otherwise dark and dangerous world. I'm going to see these things by going backwards and forwards a bit in the Bible today. Firstly, we're going to turn back to chapter 7 and see where Jesus is. What's he doing when he makes this claim about being the light of the world? Because I think that'll help us understand this passage. And having done that, we're going to turn to the next chapter, to chapter 9, because we're going to see there a practical example of Jesus being light in a dark world. So we're going to go back to chapter 7, then forward to chapter 9. I'm sorry, you're going to need your seatbelts on today. So firstly, come back with me to chapter 7, if you will. And we don't have, of course, time to read all of chapter 7. So I'm going to encourage you to do something that I ordinarily wouldn't, and that's just to make use of the headings at the start of the paragraph. These headings, of course, aren't in the original text. They're just added to help us navigate our way around the paragraphs. But you'll see at the start of chapter 7 that Jesus is at the Festival of the Tabernacles, sometimes called the Festival of the Booths. This was a Jewish festival that celebrated and remembered God's protection of Israel during their time in the desert. Do you remember what happened in the time in the desert? Moses led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. He took them through the sea and then into the desert. The Israelites from the desert 40 years and there they lived in tents or booths and they survived on the water that flowed from the rock and bread that fell from heaven and they were guided by God who existed in a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. And so at the festival of booths, in memory of that time, the Jews set up their tents. And during that festival, water was poured out in remembrance of the life-giving water that God provided in the desert. Have a look at chapter 7. Just look at verses 37 and 38 of chapter 7. There you'll see Jesus picking up on his imagery, on this imagery there and saying to the people, come and drink the water being poured out. I think it's worth knowing that at this festival, they lit these giant candles, candelabra kind of. The festival of booths, the candelabra were huge. They say they were 22 metres tall. When we were working out how to put these speakers on the wall, someone measured from the floor to the top of the roof up there and I think it's about 8 metres tall about a third of the height of these candles that they use at this festival. Huge, three times higher than the ceiling up there. And they were intended to remind and recall God's protection and his provision in the wilderness as a pillar of fire. They shone brightly in the night sky. And in a world where there was no electricity and no LED lights, giant candles 22 metres high, they would have looked like they were nearly capable of lighting up the world. And it's into this context, particularly if we skip verses 1 to 11 of chapter 8, that Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
In the context of the festival of booths, the light of the candles has been representing God himself, his guidance, his protection. And here we see Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. He's the one that gives life. He's the one who gives protection. He's the guide. He's the Messiah. I want to draw your attention to something else I read this week that I think Jewish observers might have known about this phrase that we probably miss. And that is that with the coming of the Messiah, with the arrival of God's King, well, there would be light and water. We see this in Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah is not normally one of those passages that's easy to find. But if you turn back with me to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, you'll find that on page 1489 of your Bibles. You'll be able to see this light and this water that comes with God's King. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 5 on page 1489. This is what it says. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes there will be light. On that day living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name the only name. I think Zechariah is foretelling a day when the Messiah will come and on that day living water will flow and there will be light, light in the evening, no distinction between day and night, Because the Messiah himself is light. And what has Jesus been saying? I am the light of life. And a little bit earlier on, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Jesus is making a big claim here, isn't he? I am the Messiah. That, I think, is what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of life. I am the one who saves. Salvation is found in Jesus. Here in Jesus, we have God's light. Here in Jesus, we have the bread of life. Here in Jesus, we have the living water. And now we see the light of life. Light's used in all sorts of different ways in the Bible, isn't it? We can think of Jesus as a guiding light. Just as a street lamp might light the way along a pothole road, so Jesus is a guiding light. As it says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. We can think about light as a saving light, just as a lighthouse on a rocky point provides salvation for a wayward ship. In Psalm 27, we read, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And all these things, I think, are tied up and captured in this idea of Jesus being the light of the world. And so it's probably no surprise then that this captures the attention of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. The next few verses in chapter 8, you might remember as Chris read to them, they don't really talk about this idea of light or darkness, but they do tell about a challenge between Jesus and the Pharisees. I think that challenge is because the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he speaks about being light of the world. 
and they mount a challenge. It's a bit confusing to read, but I think what they're really saying is that according to Jewish law, testimony is only valid if there's more than one witness. That's their challenge to Jesus. Of course, Jesus knows this. This has happened earlier on in John in chapter 5. A similar argument had been put forward. And back then, Jesus has listed John the Baptist as a witness, collaborating witness. He listed his miraculous work as a collaborating witness. And here he shows that his father is a supporting witness. In weeks to come, we'll look at this connection, this inseparable nature between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. We'll see this time and time again as we work our way through these I am statements of Jesus. But this week I just want to move on for a minute. Because we've been back in chapter 7 in an effort to try and understand where Jesus is and what he's doing when he makes this claim to be the light of the world. What I want to do now is just move forward to chapter 9 because in chapter 9 we see Jesus as the light of the world Working that out in the healing of a blind man, we see the light revealing who God is. Here's the way that Tim Marrow puts it in a book that he wrote. He says, Jesus as the light entered the world for the purpose of enabling mankind to see. He arrived to reveal as well as redeem. I am the light of the world was actually his startling claim that he was the revelation of God. And we see this really clearly as Jesus reveals who he is to a blind man. Chapter 9 starts this way. You might like to read along with me at the start of chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be born blind, to never know what light is. And Jesus is asked by his disciples a question. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. But so that the work of God can be displayed, this man may be healed. And there really is no more tangible contrast than moving from darkness to light in giving a blind person sight. Let me read on what happens in the story. After saying this, he, Jesus, spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. He's moved from darkness to light. He was blind and now he sees. And what does he see? Well, he sees God revealed. He sees who Jesus is. Although at first he just thinks of Jesus as a prophet. And yet the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they don't get it. They don't see. They question the man who's been healed not wanting to believe his story. They are stuck in darkness. They seem unwilling to look for the true light. Or they seem unwilling to look in the right place. Tim Marrow in his book, he tells the story of a man who loses his keys late one night. 
He's out in the street and he gets down on his hands and knees to start looking for them. And soon a friend of this man comes past and he joins in the search looking for this man's keys. And after a half hour of searching and no luck finding the keys, the friend says to the man who lost the keys in the first place, are you sure this is where you dropped them? The man replies, no, I dropped them a block away. He says, then why are you looking here? Because there's no street light a block over there, says the other man. That's a stupid story, isn't it? But the point is this, you can't find something in the dark. And you can't find something if you're looking in the wrong place. The Pharisees were zealous and pious. They were looking for God's Messiah, but they were looking in the wrong place. Jesus shows them that they are truly blind. Here in this story, in John chapter 9, we see Jesus revealing that he is the light. He's the promised Messiah. And he does that by opening the eyes of the blind man, both physically and spiritually. Physically, because he can now see. And we read about the spiritual awakening in verse 35 of chapter 9. Skip forward to verse 35. Let me read it to you. Jesus had heard that they'd thrown the man out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one you're speaking with. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Today, I want to encourage you just to read these words carefully and to consider carefully the claims that Jesus makes in this story and that John records for us. I want you to ask yourself this question. What does John want us to know because of this passage that he's written down? Here's how I think I'd answer that question. He wants us to see that Jesus is the one who shines in the darkness, revealing who God is. Jesus is the Messiah, the light for our path, the one in whom salvation is found. I want to encourage you to read these claims carefully this morning. Because if Jesus really is the one who reveals God, if he really is the light of the world, if real life is found in Jesus, then the whole world needs to turn to him. And John gives us, presents two options for us when it comes to Jesus. We can be like the Pharisees who just can't see who look for ways to test and to trick and dismiss Jesus. Or we can be like the man who sees Jesus for who he truly is and says, Lord, I believe. If you've never arrived at this point of belief, I want to encourage you not to make excuses. John has written these words for us about Jesus because he wants us to know the truth about him. He wants us to know... That Jesus is the one who has been sent as light to reveal the Father. He is the one who has been sent to bring the light of life, the water of life, the bread of life. John wants us to believe. He wants us to worship Jesus as Lord and King. Maybe this morning you've already made the decision to follow Jesus as your Lord as your King. Maybe you see him the same way that the blind man saw him. I want to give praise to God for that. Give thanks to God that he has revealed himself in Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, are you 
allowing Jesus to be the true light, the guide to your footsteps. Psalm 119 is a really long psalm, but it has these words as part of it. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. And a bit later on, though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. Here's the thing, I think, for those of us who see Jesus as the light of life. Do you allow that light to shine on the path that we take in life? In other words, do you seek to be guided by the word when you go about your daily life? Are you reading God's words often and thinking about what they mean? Does the gospel shape your decisions in life? Or do you make decisions and objectives and then kind of retrospectively pray about them or wonder whether that would be God's will for you? Think about the last big decision that you made in life. Maybe it was what school to send the kids to or maybe it was what job you wanted to take or what sort of holiday you were going to take for the year or who you were going to spend time with on the weekend. Did God's word light the decision-making pathway? Not retrospectively. I think we're quite good at doing that retrospectively. Lord, please make this new job a job of mine that would allow me to glorify you. Not retrospectively, but prospectively. Are you allowing God's light to direct us? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a great offer, isn't it? Follow me and never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I want to remind you, these are the words of God who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. These are the words of the man who wants us to know his identity as God, who reveals the Father. These are the words of the man who wants us to follow him and to live for him and to believe in him. And I pray that we would do that as we focus on Jesus' light of the world. Father God, we thank you that we can look to Jesus and see what you are like as a God. Thank you that he reveals you. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe in Jesus, to trust in him and to follow after him as the Messiah, as our Lord and King. Father God, we pray that you would help us to follow after you in the way that we live our lives as those who seek to be disciples of Jesus. Amen.